You're listening to the Enchantment Chronicles with Johnny and Drew, and today we're going to talk about George McJunkin from Folsom, New Mexico. Mr. Drew. Yeah, originally of Rogers Prairie, Texas, George McJunkin. I, I think it's safe to say he made his life in, in Folsom, New Mexico, right? Uh, I think that's I think that's fair to say. I think so. He was born in, what, the 1850s or so? Um, I don't think he even knew how old he was, but he was born in the 1850s in, in Texas pre-Civil War. Yeah. His his father, Mr. Shoeboy, was a farrier, a guy who put a blacksmith that put shoes onto horses and had worked at the McJunkin Ranch um, out there in Texas. And he had been able to buy his own freedom, but not that of his son or his wife. So he was kind of stuck out there. And and Mr. Shoeboy, his name sounded as bad to him as it does probably to us, calling a, a fully grown blacksmith uh, boy and, and Shoeboy that he hated that name, but had become a leader in his community. Um, so George was freed on June 17th, a couple of days before June 19th, but that national holiday, that declaration was made um, down in Galveston. But he was formally notified by Union troops of his freedom. Um, but a book that we have by Franklin Folsom, uh, The Life and Legend of George McJunkin, no relation to Folsom, New Mexico, but it does note that George did not run off as soon as he had the opportunity. In fact, he had stuck around. He'd had the opportunity during the Civil War to become a cowboy because all the Confederates were off, uh, you know, fighting for slavery. But his dad had said, you're only going to be able to be a cowboy for a couple more years, but they're coming back and you will not. You know, mark my words, it's in one or two years, you'll have a, a chance. And his dad had given some other um, fantastic advice. He said, uh, we've got to read, otherwise we'll always be at the bottom rail on the fence, according to this biography that was based on a lot of interviews with them. Interestingly, uh, George didn't get much education, obviously, but... He taught himself how to read and write and um, and was also in English and also in Spanish. He was fluent in both English and Spanish reading and writing, which is pretty remarkable for the time and now, frankly. No, he, he actually traded uh, – he would actually tame wild horses in exchange for reading lessons because um, back then in Texas, there was a Freedmen's Bureau that was supposed to open up schools. But night riders, masked riders, Klansmen, essentially, whether they were formally part of the Ku Klux Klan or just some other imitator, were, were showing up. So George ran off to New Mexico, where he traded horse trading lessons in order to learn how to use. Instead of getting paid, he got paid in reading lessons. And his last words were to his parents were, tell Tell my parents, tell my folks I'm all right. Tell them I'm going to be a cowboy and to look for a school. And so he went to Folsom, uh, New Mexico. 
where he did indeed become a cowboy and eventually the foreman of the Crowfoot Ranch up there along north of Folsom. And he bounced around to different uh, ranches in the in northern New Mexico and Colorado area, but eventually became known as one of the best Bronco busters in the area and best ropers. Uh, he he um, hunted buffalo and various things around around that area when you could do that. And he was, for all everything that I've read, he was one of the best cowboys that, frankly, New Mexico has ever seen, especially at that time. For sure. I mean, I don't mean to sugarcoat it. He did face some racism in New Mexico. It was normal back then for um, ranches to help each other out. I mean, now, for that matter, with roundups and, and when you're, you know, branding your calves in the spring and at, at the Crowfoot, he was helping out at a neighbor's ranch when, when they insisted that he eat separately. And it was kind of, it was recorded that, that his fellow cowboys actually said, well, if you're going to make him eat separately, then we're all even. <laughs> and so that, that, that ranch was left without help that day because they stood up for George, but he, he was also, um, you know, he definitely faced some prejudice, but he still rose to that rank of foreman. And it was well-deserved. He actually saved some several men's lives in a blizzard once by tying them together and leading him to a cabin where he knew that there was uh, likely to be somebody home in a light window and managed to save them. What The entire herd got lost in the sudden storms. So he was, he was a very accomplished cowboy and uh Western man. So. And another thing that I found of interest in, in, in reading about George was not only did he teach himself how to read and write, but he also knew numerous musical instruments. I think the fiddle and the guitar and, you know, cowboy stuff, I guess, back in the day. But um, I thought that was pretty cool to learn. He seemed to be a very well-rounded and remarkable, remarkable person. And we'll get into this a little bit more, but... He um, also became a, an amateur historian, um, even though some folks didn't listen to him while he was alive. Uh, but he, he was much more than just a cowboy. Absolutely, yeah. Possibly, well, this will be this, the, the story we kind of get to today. Last time we talked about Sally Rook, the, the heroine of the Folsom Flood that stayed at her station and kept dialing those numbers up and down the river uh, on the dry Cimarron, um, just getting as many people out as, as she could. Well, well, George has a connection to Sally Rook. Um, he actually helped search for her body, but he also, according to Franklin Folsom, was, was known kind of for teasing her a little bit in her job. She, he would call her. And instead of giving a number, he'd say, give me that hole in the wall when he wanted to talk to his friend over at uh, Albert Davis at a little cafe that was running down, down, in, uh, down in the town of Folsom. Well, he also was one of the first that saw that, that storm coming. And he tried to call Sally Rick that night. 
August 27, 1908. He had some urgent news. He'd been up on Johnson Mesa that day when the clouds began to gather. The sky turned very dark. And so he decided he should phone from the ranch house that had recently gotten a phone, which he usually Frank called her, but she hadn't been able to answer because she'd already gotten the first warning. She'd already started calling. And in fact, she'd already, uh, whether, whether he couldn't get her because her circuits were busy or whether because she'd already been washed away, he, uh, had done his best to spread his word, spread the uh, word down the river that the flood was coming. And then the next day he went back and had found, helped find 15 of the bodies after the flood. So. And unfortunately, I don't think uh, Sally was discovered months later, I think in the spring. Um, so he wasn't able to discover her, but during during the assessment of the damage, the fallout of the of the the flood, if you will, the dry Cimarron River flood, um, he was out and about there shortly thereafter, and discovered something huge. He discovered. Bones in a washed-out gulch. Uh, I know it as a different name than Drew does. I know it as the Dead Horse Gulch. And Drew, what was your book? What did your book say? Wild Horse, but it's recorded both ways. So it was probably called both ways at the time. But Wild Horse Arroyo, um, Dead Horse Gulch. But... uh Mr. Folsom uh, records him. He was checking on the fence lines and he saw some bones that looked like buffalo. He said, it's the big, biggest buffalo bone I ever saw. And I have seen plenty of them in my day. You, you noted that he was a buffalo hunter. Well, yeah. And what else? <laughs> and he also saw inside those bones um, a, uh, something that nobody had ever seen before. Uh, what is now known as the Folsom Point, uh, which was later revealed to be one of the greatest discoveries of archaeological discovery in northern New Mexican or northern New Mexico and America. North America, North American history. If that, um, yeah, I mean, at, at that time, people thought that the Native Americans might have been lost tribes of Israel. They might have just been there 2,000, 3,000 years. And this is the view of the Smithsonian's director at the time, you know, this is, and he's looking at these bison anticus bones. And it's kind of weird to think of our 2000 pound bison as the miniature version, <laughs> but these guys are about half again, as tall as what you think of as a bison. And if you've ever looked at a bison, they look at it in the eye. I, I can look at it in the eye. I'm not the tallest guy. <laughs> um, but these, this is, picture of a uh, six seven foot tall buffalo and uh that's the bison antiquus and so george realizes there's no way there's no way that bison like this are running around and um and he sees these spear points and he realizes the people have been around in north america a lot longer than anyone's thought of because he's seeing these things that look good 
you know, to his mind, probably looked closer to dinosaurs than, than anything we've seen today. And I think if if I remember correctly, I think it placed later on it placed human beings present in North America some like seven or nine thousand years bef- before we realized we knew that we had right. been here. Right. Which is pretty right. remarkable. And then later on, of course, the Clovis Clovis discovery later on down the road um, that expanded that that notion. But George was the first person to discover these points. But what Drew, do you know the story of what how he discovered it and and how he tried to tell people? Well, I, I know that he was checking those fence lines after the Folsom flood in 1908. He told a few neighbors, you know, but he told uh, Charlie Wiley and some others. But in 1912, traveling was getting a little easier out there. So, you know, there, there was a train, there was automobiles, and George went to a fair in, in um, Raton, New Mexico. And so he met Carl Schwachheim, and he sees these this fountain that was made out of some bull elk, elk antlers, you know, it was decorated with some bull elk antlers that apparently elk will sometimes lock antlers and, and get stuck together. And so they found these two bulls that had basically killed each other just by getting intertwined so much that they couldn't separate. And he said, well, I've seen something even bigger. And, and these bull elk were actually up on that St. Johnson Mesa. He said, I, I never saw bigger elk, but I've seen the bones of animals that were plenty big enough to hold them up. And so he, he's speaking to uh, Schwachheim and his son, Carl Schwachheim, and he tells them about it. And Carl Schwachheim and says, if I ever get time off from work and if somebody gives me a ride, I'll come out there, out there to wild horse or dead horse where I go. George said he'd be glad to show him the place. So he was ready to show them back in 1912. It took something like uh, 10 years to convince somebody to come out, 10, 14 years, 12 years to convince somebody to come out to look at these bones. Yeah. An archaeologist from Colorado came out, but it was after George's death in January 22nd, 1922. So one he passed away. But later in July, Carl still... And, and another fella, um, Fred Howarth in Raton, and a fella a taxidermist in Raton, James Campbell, went out in a car with a fourth guy, a bricklayer, and, and a, a local priest. They went out and they headed out to where Georgie made that discovery. And they made this, they made the same discovery and agreed these Folsom Point in, embedded with the giant bison, along with the cut marks, the butchering marks on the bones, proved his theory. So they, they pulled some of the bones out and took them back to Raton in 1922. Same year George died, um, they, they kind of honored, organized that trip finally in his memory. And then um, Fred Howard, one of the guys, 
visited the Colorado Museum of Natural History, where we met J.D. Figgins. And uh, Figgins and other scientists realized these guys were onto something. And, and he traveled back down to Folsom to what they saw, what, what Jordy called the bone pit. Because um, it wasn't just one giant pipe. And these, these, these people had been organized and they'd been driving these bison into what you, what you call dead horse arroyo or dead ho- horse gulch, right? Dead horse gulch. It, it had been a place basically for thousands of years where they could drive herd animals and, and trap them. Dead bison gulch. Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> Dead bicycle. <laughs> and wild horse arroyo. You you run the wild horses up there, you get them trapped, you can break. So interestingly, at least to me, he even though he made this discovery and he died, and, and after he died, a lot of people uh, made more discoveries about it. Um, it took a long time for George to get any recognition for his discovery. The folks that came down from Colorado never credited him um, for a long time. Uh, it was unknown that he actually made this discovery, um, certainly not within his lifetime. And I believe it wasn't until like the 40s or so to where somebody mentioned, um, I believe it was a New Mexico archaeologist, Frank Hibbins, who mentioned, who gave George McJunkin credit um, for finding those those bones and that arrowhead, those arrowheads. In that, uh, in that, in that arroyo. Yeah, and and a lot of credit does deserve to go to the people in Baton and Folsom that never kind of ceased giving him credit. <laughs> Correct. They they uh, they were sort of inexorable about that. They they kept telling that story over and over and over again to anyone that would listen. It, it certainly uh, his. Uh, he was not given the, the due in his life, but his neighbors kind of insisted that he be given it after his death. And that's why we hear about it today. So it uh, says a lot about Northern New Mexico, says a lot about New Mexico, because in other places he would have just been forgotten and nobody would have ever given him credit. Absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. George ended up dying just, just so in 19 January of 1922 at that, um, there's a Folsom Hotel. I don't know if you've been there, Drew, but there's a Folsom Hotel. It's still staying. There's still a sign. It's really cool. Uh, he died there, and um, he's buried at that local cemetery there in Folsom. Okay. Um, and for those of you that are interested in hearing more, we actually um, have uh, some resources, some lesson plans, but also some National Park Service over at the neighboring Kaplan National Monument um, produced a, a great little video about George. And, and there have been, you know, the Smithsonian Magazine, you know, the Smithsonian was the people poo-pooing his theory, but they've written up <laughs> that that story about uh, how he changed American archaeology forever. And, and right now, New Mexico is back in the news. We may again have the oldest signs of human habitation in North America. When the Folsom points were found, that was the first time we we did. We, they got they got surpassed by the Clovis points. Right now, I think the clearest example is down in Mexico. There's a there's an underwater cave in the ocean where the where the sea when the sea levels were lower, there was a little girl uh, that broke her leg in the cave along with her animal bones. But we also found out uh, down near uh, 
white sands where, where there used to be a prehistoric lake, there's footprints of kids running around. Depending on some dating methods that it's probably worth exploring in another podcast, that might be the oldest human habitation or it might not uh, sign in North America. We have that we have that desert advantage on the other states. Yeah. So, well, all right. That's all I've got for Mr. George McJunkin. Yeah. Um, certainly there's, there's a lot more you can tell about him. Again, the life of legend of Franklin Fol- of George McJunkin, uh, by Franklin Folsom, no relation to Folsom County or Folsom, New Mexico, uh, is a recommended, but out of print book. And there's also Brian Burke has written a, uh, not, uh, a historical fiction book called Rango about George McJunkin. That's, Rango, W-R-A-N-G-O. If you ever want to learn a little more, you're free to check out the lesson plan that we have links to on our site. Thanks, Johnny. Yeah, thanks, Drew. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Um, And uh, tune in next time uh, for the Enchantment Chronicles.